right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time for that. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Chargers beating the Raiders last night on Monday Night Football. It's funny because that was one of those games where the Raiders had the better record. And if the Raiders win the game, they're further up in the division. And at that point, maybe you do take the Raiders even more seriously because they beat another good team. But also, you're kind of rooting for the Raiders because you trust them less long-term to maintain the divisional lead than you do the Chargers. And I I feel like it's tougher to catch the Chargers now if you're the Chiefs than the Raiders. Plus, you still have two games against the Raiders to try to catch them. You only have the one left against the Chargers who already got you on your home field. So Chargers really good, and I saw a stat today that they have held every opponent they've played so far this season to their lowest point total of any of their four games. So every team they've played has had their worst offensive game, basically. The defense is really good. Justin Herbert is quickly becoming an elite quarterback. Chargers are for real. I I said yesterday in the Monday overreaction, the Bills are the team to beat in the AFC. You could really have a good argument it's the Chargers. I think Bills and the Chargers both are, in my eyes, the top tier of team. Now, if the Chiefs go out there this week and beat the Bills, then I'm ready to put them back in. But the defense is a problem. We'll talk, we'll talk more about the Chiefs in the uh, 4 o'clock hour. Urban Meyer situation in Jacksonville is kind of coming to a head here. Um, it seems as if Urban Meyer is not going to be lasting very long in Jacksonville. I, I thought it was interesting that... You know, you got all these rumors of, oh, he's going to go to USC and take that job. I just, I, I liked the joke and it was fun joking around about it, but I just didn't really see the path to him doing that unless he pulled like a Bobby Petrino and just left after, you know, like seven games or something and just went to the college game. This might be his way out because it's really hard to get fired after just one season, right? It has to be an absolute disaster. And as bad as it's been, it's still only been you know, four games, you have a young team, you have a team who was really bad last year, they had the first pick, it's not like you're taking over this great team, you know, you were competitive, you almost beat the Bengals on Thursday night, Uh, but then there was the video of Urban Meyer, like, at some random bar, like, dancing with some, I don't know, random girl, and this is Michael Silver reporting on this, who used to work for Sports Illustrated, I'm not not sure who he works with now, um, But he released a thread on Twitter, and he said an update on the Urban Meyer situation. One, the Urban Meyer situation in Jacksonville has reached a crisis point, especially in the locker room. One player told me he has zero credibility in that stadium. He had very little to begin with. Two, players were particularly put off by the fact that Meyer canceled Monday's team meeting as he dealt with the uproar over the videos of him and a young woman getting cozy in that Ohio bar. He even canceled the team meeting. He was too scared, a player said. Three, instead, Meyer only apologized to position groups individually. He portrayed the woman in the videos as a random person who was just there dancing. Suffice it to say, his audience was highly skeptical. Four, 
said one player. We looked at him like WTF. Right when he left, everyone started dying laughing, laughing, and he knew it. And five, bottom line, said the player, it's bad. I don't know how he's going to function. It's interesting because, I mean, I don't know. Like, some of these NFL players, I'm sure, have, have done worse things than dance with a girl at a bar. So I don't think there's some guys who are going to see that and go, wow, can you believe this? I think it's more so the fact of how he's handling it and they feel like he's handling this and it's a joke and they feel like they're being lied to about this. And this is kind of the big difference between professionals and, and coaching college. Um, you're not going to be able to be the totalitarian. You're not going to be able to, you know, it's my way or the highway. And even if I mess up, you still got to listen to me, right? In the pros, if you mess up, you're getting called out for it too. And he's not used to that. So this does seem like Urban Meyer going to be at USC next season. Uh, they're going to win the Pac-12 title. They'll be in the college football playoff in two years. And then they'll win the national title by 2024. Book it right now. If you could get odds on USC winning a national title in specifically like the year 2024, I wonder what odds you could get, but I would be all about that right now. All right, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN MLB playoffs start tonight. Maybe we'll talk about that uh, later on in the show. But coming up on the other side, Derek's deep deliberations, talking a little KU football. And then after that, we'll have Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com will join us. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 at 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Matt Tate joins the show in about 20 minutes from right now. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I am Derek Johnson on today's edition of RCST. Time to get to another edition of Derek's Deep Deliberations, KU Football Edition. First thought, despite the scoring... In the game against Iowa State, where you put up just seven points on offense for KU, that was actually KU's second most impressive rushing effort and effort from the offensive line of the season. Number one on that list would be the Duke game. Number two would be the Iowa State game. So, you got good production out of Devin Neal. Averaged over four yards per carry. Um, maybe at four yards per carry. You ran over 150 yards as a team. It wasn't, you know the greatest game running the ball, but you're talking about a defense coming into that game in Iowa State that was allowing 215 yards per game total, and you had 150 rushing yards against them. That Iowa State defense, that same defense, in the Iowa game. And Iowa right now is a top five team. Iowa is a top five team who offensively leans on their ground game. Iowa State held Iowa to 39 carries for 67 yards. That's 1.7 yards per carry for a top five team who's reliant on the running game against Iowa State. Wasn't the greatest rushing game in the world. Wasn't overall a good offensive game for you. But having 150 rushing yards against that defense, that speaks pretty well. And okay, me saying it's the second best, you know, impressive rushing effort, the second best offensive line performance, it's not a high bar. Right, You haven't had a ton of games where you've been able to say that. And I don't want to make this sound like, oh, well, you know, they were Alabama on the offensive line out there because of the fact that they were even able to 
put up 150 yards. That's not the case. But it's progress, at least from that unit. And that offensive line has been much maligned with how it's been talked about, with how much it has struggled so far this season. So you're looking for growth. And I think you found it the last two weeks. Duke game was your best game blocking-wise. Duke game was your best game just offensively in general. And it was your best game running the football. And this Iowa State game, considering the competition, when you add the competition into play, that makes it even more impressive that, you know, maybe statistically like an average or below average game given the opponent turns into and given the fact that you might be kind of grading yourself on a curve because of where KU football is becomes an impressive outing so that was nice to see that you did get the running game established the offensive line continues to take steps forward and I think if if you can get 150 yards on the ground against this Iowa State defense there's no excuse you can't get 200 yards rushing you know in some games against a team like Texas Tech or West Virginia or, or maybe some of these other Big 12 teams who maybe aren't going to be as stellar at stopping the run as Iowa State is. And, you know, funny enough, too, that game was actually uh, against Iowa State. It was KU's highest-rated pass-blocking game, if you go by pro football focus grade, against an FBS team, if you don't got the South Dakota game. And it was still just 54, meaning... There's still a lot of work to be done. Again, that's a low bar to have to clear. But I think based on all that, you have to really like the progress of the offensive line that you've seen over the last couple weeks. And despite only being able to put up seven points, it was a pretty impressive outing for that KU football offensive line. There just were too many other issues. You couldn't really get the passing game going. It was inconsistent. Iowa State was really good in coverage. And even though... For your standards compared to the defense you were playing, it was a relatively good outing. It still wasn't a good outing in the comparison to like top college football teams. So there's still a jump that has to be had there, but progress was made on the offensive line, which I'm looking for each and every week. All right, number two. Well, tackling has been an issue for Kansas this year. It is far from the only issue on this defense, and, and KU was actually graded an 83 against Iowa State in tackling grade. 83, that's a really good number against Iowa State in its tackling game. So, the thought, this defense has a lot more problems than just tackling. And the thought, even if KU was a good tackling team, they would still be a bad defense. Now, you add up the rest of the stuff being bad with the bad tackling, then it's a recipe for disaster, which the defense kind of has been right now ever since the South Dakota game. So, you know, it definitely would be helped by the tackling. But even if they were good at tackling, like you saw in the Iowa State game, they're still not a good defense. And it's just more than that one issue. They're The defense, speaking-wise, just not really good at any level. Um, the defensive line is better than the other positional units on the defense, the linebackers and the DBs. But I think it's been oversold because of that as being a strength. And so it's like, it's a strength for the unit because it's the best positional unit of the three levels. But still, if you're comparing, you know, KU's defensive line to all the other teams in the Big 12, it's probably ranking ninth or 10th. So even KU's strength on defense isn't a strength for other teams. And I, I do think Kyron Johnson is a really good player, a good Big 12 player, but the problem is you don't really have any other true pass rush threats. 
and add to it, KU can't really get themselves into pass rush situations because if the opponent is in third and two, third and three, third and four, whenever they're attempting a third down, you can't really pin your ears back as a pass rusher and go get the quarterback, and you're not in enough of those situations, which all goes back to all the other issues, the lack of tackling, lack of defensive line stopping the run, lack of linebackers stopping the run. It's just everything all comes together. I was looking at some stats. This is this is pretty pretty bad. KU has just 14 tackles for loss this season. That's 14, which I guess what that average is about three per game. Not a great number. And when I say this, like tackles for loss, you can attribute it to the linebackers and the defensive line. So uh, speaking the defensive line here, but this also does apply to the linebackers. Those 14 tackles for loss for KU rank dead last in the country. 130 teams in the FBS, 130th in tackles for loss. That's what KU is this season. UConn, who is atrocious in the butt of a lot of football jokes right now, UConn, who is 0-5. UConn has 29 tackles for loss. That is more than double what Kansas has. It's just a really bad defense for KU. And you go look at really any metric, SP+, points allowed per game, yards allowed per game, yards allowed per play. Uh, They're 127th in the country in stop rate. This is just a very bad defense. And... It's easy to point to the tackling, and I've pointed to it too. And like I said, for the most part, it has been a problem this year. But I think when you end up with that game against Iowa State where you do have like an 83 tackle grade and you still see them put up 58 points, you start to realize, oh, maybe this is about more than just the tackling. And even though the tackling is easier to diagnose when you're just watching the game because it's easy to see, hey, you just missed the tackle. It's a lot easier to see that and watching the game and evaluating it than it is to go, oh, you're in the wrong spot. You're running the wrong play. We don't know what play they called, you know. Uh, You're in the wrong zone. You're in cover two instead of cover three. Or, you know, whatever it is, like tackling is the easiest thing to see, and when you mess up, it sticks out the most. They were actually good in tackling against Iowa State. It still didn't matter because there's so many other issues. And I'm not sure if the defense overall, because of all these issues, if they're going to even finish better than they were last year, just statistically. I mean, last year you gave up 46 points per game. I kind of thought that you could see a big improvement in terms of just the bare bones base points allowed per game stat because if KU was running the ball a lot and there'd be less possessions in the game, so you give up less points that way. Also, you give up 46 points per game last year, which is insanely high so that should just get better by the team getting better you added some transfers into the program and on top of that you're talking about last year all of the opponents that you played against all nine were fbs opponents eight of them in the big 12 the other one was a top 15 coastal carolina team whereas this year you had the south dakota game mixed in there you had the duke game mixed in there but might be worse than it was last year. Right now, they're they're averaging a few less points allowed per game, 43.8. But if you just look at the FBS games, KU has given up 51 points per game in FBS games. That is atrocious. I, I think it was either UMass or UConn a couple years ago gave up like 50 a game, and I think that was an NCAA record. That's how bad this KU defense has been this year, and I don't know how fixable it is 
like I said, even the tackling was better against Iowa State. And it didn't matter. There are just holes at every level of defense. There's inexperience. Players aren't athletic enough, fast enough, strong enough. That's going to take some time. The defense is a problem. And unlike the offense where you can see improvement week to week from the offensive line and you can convince yourself that by the end of the season, yeah, maybe the offensive line will, will be in stride with each other and that'll be a unit that you can depend on running the football. It's hard to pinpoint something on the defensive side of the ball that you just circle and say, yeah, no, they're progressing there. That's going to get a lot better as the season goes on. And that is very worrisome, especially when you're looking at some of these other offenses coming in where you've got a Texas who put up 70 on Texas Tech. You've got Oklahoma who hasn't been all that impressive offensively so far compared to where we normally see them, but it's still Oklahoma. They got dudes everywhere all over the field. And you just think of some of the classic Big 12 offenses, even though the league has been pretty good on the defensive side this year. And you wonder if the defense is going to end up worse than it was last year, which is a pretty low bar to clear. All right. Third and final thought of Derek's deep deliberations. Lance Leipold has been good at getting turnarounds from his team after bad performances. And so the thought is, that gives me a little more hope for the Texas Tech game, even despite the fact that Texas Tech won at West Virginia, despite the fact that you just got your brains beat in by Iowa State. Here's the instances for Lance Leipold when he was at Buffalo where his team lost by 25 or more points, so he lost by four scores or more, and how they followed it up. And I, I left out a few. Like, there were a couple times, like, where they lost to, I don't know, they lost to, like, a ranked Power 5 team, or they lost to uh, a Power 5 team that, you know, you're not expecting them. You know, I think they lost to Boston College in one of their first couple years, who, talking about a bowl team from Boston College, and this is one of the first years for Leipold at Buffalo when they're not a very good max school. Like, obviously, you're expecting to lose those. But 2015, Lance Leipold's first year at Buffalo, they lost 51-14 to to Central Michigan. So lost by 37 to Central Michigan. And at the time, that dropped them to 2-4 and four in his first season. Very next week, they beat Ohio 41-17. to Beat down Ohio. And that was a good Ohio team coached by Frank Solich. 8-5 and five was the record of that Ohio team. Impressive turnaround for Buffalo there. 2016, lost at Northern Illinois, 44-7. Followed it up with a 41-20 win over Akron. 2018, Buffalo got creamed by Army, 42-13. Buffalo followed it up with a 34-24 win at Central Michigan. Last season, Buffalo fell 52-17 to Ohio. And they followed that up, or I'm sorry, later that season. Did I say last season? They've followed that loss up with a 44-14 win at Bowling Green in 2018. So there's just some examples of him getting blown out one week and being able to turn things around, being able to get quick adjustments on the fly in the course of the season. And like I said, there's other cases too where he followed it up with maybe, you know, you lost big to a team who you're overmatched by or you've followed up a... a Big loss with a more competitive loss the next week, but not winning. But those are just some examples of wins, and I think that has to give you hope for the Texas Tech game. Now, obviously, from a Texas Tech perspective, you view them now a little differently after they did beat West Virginia and do, did so on the road, and maybe you view it more so now that, okay, the West Virginia game is going to be the most winnable game for KU because it's on senior day, so you have a little extra emotion there. You have the fact that, 
um, for KU. It would be their last game of the season. So theoretically, that would be the most complete version of KU, the most in tune with all the schemes and playing with each other. So you think that's just the best version of KU to be able to do it. Uh, you've played West Virginia. I mean, you were competitive with them last year, and then they pulled away, but the defense kept you in it for a little. Um, year before, you almost beat West Virginia on your home field. Gives you confidence there in West Virginia. Lost to Texas Tech. Unfortunately, it's kind of a, like, Kansas is in a tier all to themselves for the bottom tier of the Big 12. So, I don't really think it much matters, and to me, the West Virginia and Tech games are both about pretty even with your chances to win both. The advantage you have to this one is it's coming off a bye week, so you have the extra week to prepare. It's homecoming week, so you would think this is going to be better attended than the West Virginia game at the end of the season when it's cold and it's Thanksgiving week, I believe. I would still probably rank this one as a slight 1A over 1B to West Virginia for most winnable, but they're still going to be double-digit underdogs. That said, I expect a stronger performance bouncing back from the Iowa State game. And I don't know if that means a victory. In fact, I won't be picking a victory. But can you be more competitive? Because if you're not, the apathy is going to start to come in and fan interest is going to dissolve because at that point, you get blown out by Texas Tech. You're only a couple weeks from basketball season. You just got blown out again off of a bye week. At that point, you're going to hear the phrase a lot. Well, it's almost basketball season. That is Derek's Deep Deliberations. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, joins us next. All right, that time on a Tuesday. Time to talk to Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, here with us on RCST. Uh, so, Matt, uh, the football team falling short of not just covering the spread, but I think of expectations coming into that game against Iowa State. You were just hoping hang around a little, and that got squashed pretty early on, getting down 28 nothing at the end of the first quarter. Do you think those same issues that, that have kind of killed KU for past years that we saw in that game against Iowa State, should that be held against this staff right now that it hasn't been fixed for some of the smaller issues, or is it as simple as putting on the blinders this season as to what specifically happens? I, I definitely don't think it should be held against them, um, but it, it, but it's hard not to, you know. So I, I get it. I mean, th- this has been the plight of every KU football coach, or at least the last two or three. Right? They they come in and and they deserve a fresh start, and they and they and they need a fresh start, and they need time. But they're coming into a an, an angry, grumbling fan base that and and that has been going through this same old stuff for three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten years in a row. You know, and and so uh, while it, in a perfect world you'd want these guys to come in fresh and clean and have the time they want, the undying support and 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 all that stuff, it's just not realistic to expect or even ask for that because you're walking into a situation where the fans are fed up. And so it puts these coaches in, in, a, in a position where you, you better show an astronomical amount of improvement, uh, an unrealistic amount of improvement pretty quickly 
if you don't want people to check out. And it's just not easy to do. Um, it, 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 there's a reason that the whole thing is called rebuilding because you actually have to build it and you have to, and you have to pull it out of some depths and, and, and get it going in the right direction again. And so the, the idea of, of having positive things happen in spades early on is just it's just not realistic and so everybody can say that everybody can go into it understanding that whether you're on the coaching side or the fan side but it doesn't really matter when it actually is happening and you watch your team go out there and lose 59 to 7 all it does is upset you and make you roll your eyes and make you want nothing to do with the program so it's really it's such a conundrum I mean it's such a a tough, tough spot for for any new coaching staff to be in because as as much as it's not fair for the fans to, to say this is the same old crap or whatever they say, right? It, it, how can you blame them? You know, so I, I think that I, and I wrote a column um, Friday or Saturday night after that game. Um, I didn't go up there. Benton went up there by himself, and I hadn't planned on really writing anything because still working on some late night stuff and that kind of thing. But um, you know, after you see that game go that way, you understand that people are wanting answers or, or wanting somebody to to sort of give some sort of statement or reason that isn't just the coach saying what, what's got to happen. And so I wrote a column that basically was kind of how I saw it, and, and I, I liked the angle when it hit me, and it came out pretty quickly and the whole bit. But but the idea of looking at progress is, is a waste of time right now. I mean – it's not there and it won't be there until you get better talent, better players and and time for this system and these coaches to take hold. So uh, I'm as guilty as anyone, um, you know, as, as somebody who covers the team and has for a a number of years now, anytime this happens, you, you do, you look at the situation and you say, okay, well, where's progress? Well, that's, that looks a little better or this is different or that's better. And you're so desperate and eager to cover the progress because that's what fans want to read and see and learn about and all of that, that, that you, you just kind of force it sometimes. And so for me, that was what this week was about. That, that game was, you know, this the looking for progress is done. I'm not going to do it the rest of the season. Maybe it'll show itself, but if it doesn't, I'm not going to force it. I'm not going to worry about it. The only thing that matters now is the process. And so if you can, if you can focus on, do I like the way Lance Leipold and his staff are approaching things? Yes or no. Do I like the way he is, you know, building this thing? Do I like his long-term vision for this thing? Do I like him as a, as a human being? And if you can start answering yes to those questions, and maybe you don't, there's, there could be some no's in there, but, but if you can answer yes to those questions, then what you're doing is you're embracing the process and you're, and you're not worrying about progress. Because as I said, sometimes the progress just isn't going to be there. And I think Kansas football of all places is sort of the tip of the iceberg on that deal, right? Like the, the absolute poster child for don't look for progress. It might not be there. It might be there two years from now or even heading into this time next year. But if you're looking for it this season, it's just, it's, you're just fighting a losing battle right away. So process, 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 not progress, because you just are going to be disappointed. Anybody that thought that that game on Saturday night was going to go different than that hasn't been paying attention and is, and is letting the, the hopes and the progress they want to see cloud their vision. Because you, I could have told you I wouldn't have predicted the exact score, but 
I think anybody that, that was paying attention was knew that Iowa State was going to absolutely lay a beating on Kansas, and that's what happened. Man, I don't know who replaced Matt Tate with Joel Embiid, all this process talk, right? <laughs> um. I hate it. I hate writing it <laughs> because that's the deal. And I'm not nowhere in my column did I say trust the process. I, it's about embracing the process here. You, mm-hmm. you, you know, trusting the process is a whole different level. That's like the next step. But you just have to embrace that it's the process and not the progress. And it was fun because it hit my head like that, right? Like we've been looking at it all wrong. It's the same word. All you're doing is taking out that second R and replacing the G with the C. It's the same word. So um, that's where my little writer trick kind of came into play, and I kind of built the whole thing around that. But I do think there's something to it. I love that. And and I think it's interesting from a a fan perspective of, you know, because I I understand if you do get frustrated about this, but – I'm almost to a point where I just say you put the blinders on for the rest of the season with what's going to happen results-wise, and you know you just hope for the best from there, and whatever happens, happens. But the flip side of that, if you are somebody who is in the camp of just saying, hey, you know what, they, they're dealing with all these challenges. They started late. It was already a team who didn't win a game last year. You know, it, Tough circumstances. It's going to take time, as we all know. So I'm going to just put the blinders on. Whatever happens this year happens, and I'm more focused on the long term next year or in 2023 or 2024. The flip side of that is if you're going to do that, it it's hard for me to blame a fan to say, well, I'm also, by putting the blinders on, not really going to care. I'm not really going to watch as much. I'm not really going to go out to the stadium. And it's hard for me to you know blame somebody for wanting to do that. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, I, yeah, I 100% agree with you there. It's, it's, um, it, it comes down to the investment, and that, that's been a big part of this season. Um, number one, because you have a new football coach, and it's a, it's a start of something, right? But number two, everybody knows that the, the realignment part of this, this puzzle is, is, is really big right now with, with football especially. So, you know, you, you and I wrote a column about this maybe before the season even started, but, but it was basically like, you know, if, if you want your program to be in the Big Ten, you've got to show up and act like you want them to be in the Big Ten. And that means going to the games, and that means staying, and that means supporting them and all that. Well, I meant that then, and I believed that then, but I also can understand why after a few weeks of trying that, if they're not showing you anything worth watching, then if that's not for everybody. And, and I, do, I do understand both sides of it. KU absolutely needs you, but if you're just going to watch 59-7 to or the second half against Baylor, then – why? I mean, I do. I get that. So it, it it's uh, it just comes back to what a tough what a tough situation this is for all parties involved. I mean, it's you know the, the people ask me all the time, how do you cover this thing? And I mean, the, somebody a media member who covers Kansas football has it easier than anyone involved because this, it doesn't matter to me. The score's zero zero when I get there, and at the end of the day, we got to tell you how it happened and what happened along the way and why the final score was what it was but we're not invested. We don't care. We're getting paid to be there. Um, you know, I mean, it's much harder for a fan who's paying to be there or, or giving up their time to, to decide, well, this is worth it or isn't worth it or whatever. And then, of course, um, th- th- this process takes its toll on, on the coaches that, that have higher hopes and the players who believe that they're working hard and that that should mean something. And, and it's just, it just continues to show you what a, what a tough, tough, Past this is. I mean, this is uh, this is 
you know, of course everyone wants to look back at what Bill Snyder did at Kansas State, and you talk to people and they'll tell you that that place was in a way worse shape than this is right now, and that maybe is debatable. Um, times were different, too, right? That's the late 80s. This is 2021. I mean, it's worlds apart, so I don't know that you can even compare that as, as apples to apples. But either way, it is a monster of a challenge, and it is as hard of a job as there is in, in maybe all of college sports, or all of sports, for that matter. So um, that's why I, I continue to believe that, that Lance Leipold is the right guy. Um, it's not because he went out there and made a better showing against Iowa State. He didn't. They got killed, and it was bad, and there were a lot of mistakes. But what he said after the game, his 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 vision for what he needs to do from there moving forward and, and what he believes will happen the rest of this season, not on the scoreboard, but in terms of what's taking place inside that building and inside the heads of the players that he needs um, you know, he, he understands and believes the right things and, and knows how to, to go about, you know, putting those into place. Again, the final score and, and efforts like that that embarrass the fans, it's going to be hard for people to continue to, to think that. Uh, but, but that's kind of like you said, that's why you put the blinders on. That's why you, you worry about the process and not looking for progress because it's just not going to happen. There's a reason that people were predicting one win this season. And, that's it. that's what we're looking at right now. So I, I think that it's so unfair to, to, to say that Leipold doesn't have it or isn't the right guy or anything like that. Maybe he isn't. I mean, we'll find out, right? Time will tell on that deal. But um, I, I still I still tend to believe he is and can get this thing going in the right direction again. It's just going to take time. And people are so sick of hearing that, and I'm so sick of saying it, and I understand all of it. But I don't know what your alternative is. I mean, it's not like you can invent this parallel world that is, you know, running uh, alongside this one and, and you get to enjoy that one a little bit more. No, this is it. This is your reality. This is what you're facing. And so the only thing you can do is give it time. And, and if you can't give it time, then don't, you know, check out. No big deal. But um, but it's going to take time. There's no shortcutting it. That's for sure. Talking with Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com and yeah, it does kind of feel like now is, you know, we always hit this point at some time of year where it's the changing of the guard from, you know, football season to, okay, well, that hasn't worked out. At least there's some buzz around the basketball team, and it seems like we are starting to shift into that time of year with late night in the fog on Friday night. Um, does that make the game against Texas Tech in a couple weeks? Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe the Iowa State was the, the last straw for that to happen, but do you think the, the Texas Tech game might be the, the last stand, so to speak, to keep that attention for KU football? Probably. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Um, n- number one, because people view Tech as a team that's you know toward the bottom of the rankings anyway, right? So maybe you you get this whole notion of, of, well, maybe we can compete with them, and we'll see. I mean, again, nothing changes that much in a week. Maybe they have a great game plan. Maybe the extra week off helps them develop something that keeps them in that game. Maybe not. You know, I mean, we'll see. But, but, um, but yeah, I would think that there's enough around that, especially because you don't have basketball games yet, you know, so that's, that's not until November still. But if, if they lose in a, in a – 
in an embarrassing fashion, or even even like they lost to Baylor, you're in it for a half and then you're not. You know, I mean, if if that happens in two weeks against uh, Texas Tech, then I, I would imagine that the grumbling will get louder, and and if nothing else, then then apathy will set in, and that's the worst part, right? Like you want to hear your fans upset and and groaning and and frustrated because they're still in it, then they still care. It's when they don't even pay attention to you that you've got a real problem. But look, that's dramatic, and and I think that that's that's not really a factor here because as we've seen, if you win, they'll be there. It's that simple. So you could have the entire card carrying fan base of Kansas football fans formally declare that they are checking out on this team, and in 2024, if you start four and zero they're all going to be back. I mean, it's, that's, they'll all be back. And so, so that takes some of the, the, the drama away from it. That takes some of the, the intensity. And, and, and maybe that's what, you know, needs to happen. I mean, I, I don't think that, that there's a real focus inside the building on let's do this for the fans. I mean, I think they want to give their fans a good show and they want to give their fans something to feel good about. And, and they know they need their support and all that. So they're definitely aware and thinking about the the fans, but I think too much time spent on thinking about that part of it from a player and coach perspective is, is wasted time. They just have to go in there and really put the focus on, getting better, developing talent, improving talent, and, and trying to put something on the field that, that people can get excited about. And the only way to do that is work and time. And so, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think that, that you need to overly state or dramatize that, oh, the fans might check out. Yeah, well, yeah, they might. But if you get it going again and, and throw some wins up on the board, they will absolutely jump back on because that's what fans do. I mean, in all sports at all times, um, you know, you look at the chiefs, right? Like Arrowhead had this mystique throughout the nineties, right? And it was a tough place to play. And then for a long time, you had guys like Todd Haley as your head coach and, and, you know, lean years where you weren't winning very many games and you were picking high in the draft because the season sucked. Well, Arrowhead wasn't that tough of a place to play then. Um, you know, that, that, that's just, that's how it goes. And then all of a sudden Mahomes comes back and I'm sorry, Mahomes comes into the picture and now you're the toast of the league and you're the hottest team and the most exciting brand of football. And of course they're back. And of course Arrowhead's rocking again. So it's, it's the same concept. I'm not by any means drawing a parallel that the Kansas football is ever going to get to that level. Um, but from a fan support standpoint it, it, that's how it can happen just be exciting be good and compete again and and they'll show up because that that happened that happened just down the road with your nfl team and and it happens all the time all over the country talking with matt tate lawrence journal world so speaking of basketball with that upcoming you were late night in the fog on friday is there anything you take away from the scrimmage i know it's you know bill self's not actually coaching it and there's not rotations. I, I don't know how much you can pull away from it, but was there anything that you came away from it uh, observationally? Uh, yeah, I mean, a few things. I, I did post something really about every scholarship player that kind of stood out to me. Um, most of it was pretty good, and, uh, you know, there's, there's, that's up on our site right now. That, that, so I won't bore you with the every player-by-player player breakdown. I'll say the, the two or three things that jumped out the most, I think. Um, Jalen Wilson looks like a different man. 
Um, his his lower body strength is outrageous. I mean, his legs are twice as big as they were. You can tell he's put in a ton of work, and uh, he was already this team's leading score. I'm sorry, leading rebounder last year. So, I would imagine a stronger base and, and things like that are, are going to make him not only tougher on the boards, but tougher everywhere. He just looks so much more physical right now. So um, that really stood out just from an eyeball perspective. That was, I just kept going, wow, he looks, he looks so much bigger. And, uh, and then, um, you know, you got a bunch of veterans on this team that I think are, are absolutely ready to lead this group. I think Christian Brown looked great the other night. He looks like a guy who is um, willing to attack the rim whenever given a crease. Uh, Ochai looked assertive, and I think that was a big part of his coming back. You know, he he really um, disappeared out there in those combine scrimmages, and and he can't do that if he wants to make a jump to the next level. So he looked assertive and aggressive to me, but he also it still looked like it came within the team concept, and 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 there's a lot to like about that because he's not a selfish kid. He's not going to do that. So um, you you want to see him look to to go get his and, and attack, but but not dominate the ball or dribble it until the leather falls off or anything like that. So, um, you know, those three guys right there that, that are a big part of we're, – we're a big part of last year's team that are going to be a big part of this year's team. Um, Remy Martin is, of course, one of those guys that everybody was watching, and, and I was really excited just to see what he looks like. He's so quick. He's so quick. And he didn't take a shot the other night, and he still wowed people, and he still left people going – Holy cow! You can you can just see what what kind of dynamic he brings to the table, and um, he's the kind of guy that you know. Think about Devon Dotson, or or uh, you know, think about Frank Mason, and think about when the shot clock was down to six, and you didn't have anything going, and and you had to have somebody just go get it. Well, he's a guy that can do that, and and that first step is so quick and it may be a jailbreak situation, you know, but, but he can get by almost anybody. And I think at the very least get into the paint, throw something up, create something, get fouled, something like that. So, you know, Remy could not take a shot all year and I think he could still have a major impact on this team. So that was, that was cool to see um, in person, see how he looked. And then I think just philosophically, they just, you see it, man, their depth is there. Their athleticism is there. They're so fast when they want to be. They've got a bunch of dudes, big and small, who can get out and go. And I, I just think that this team is going to uh, put so much pressure on opponents. Um, makes, misses, whatever they, whatever happens, I think they're just going to get the ball and attack and, and just try to kill you in transition and run, run, run. And, and, and I also thought that they tried to play above the rim a lot. Um, multiple guys, which has been a problem outside of Udoka over the last few years. That's been a real problem, and and that's uncharacteristic of Bill Self's teams. He's he loves teams to play above the rim, and so I think this is, from the looks of it anyway, this is a team that will and can do that. So, um, nothing other than a lot of uh, confirmations of things that I already suspected. But you know, there's a reason this is going to be ranked second or third in the country heading into the season, and and uh, one of the true contenders to, to make a real run. So it, it's, it's going to be a blast of a year. These guys are, are loaded and talented, and, and, you know, I think all of their returning starters and guys that are back are, are improved in some way or another. And then they really, really, as we could see the other night, they really improved their depth. Because there were times last year, Derek, where 
they they couldn't go to the bench because they just didn't have anyone to go to. You didn't know who you could trust. You didn't feel good about going to somebody um, for a spark or or anything. And so, you know, you just kind of let those starters try to hang in there and hold it together and then get tired and things like that. And so I think they've upgraded their depth and their their bench and their first five or six off the bench if they need to go that deep. Um, They've upgraded that so much. So it, it... it's going to be a really talented team, and, and they're going to be a lot of fun to watch. He is Matt Tate. You can check out all his work, including all those uh, reviews of all the different players in the Late Night in the Fog game at the LJ World and KUSports.com. Matt, thank you so much for the time, as always, man. My pleasure. Thanks, Derek. Have a good week. All right, that was Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Joins us every Tuesday here on RCST. I'm Derek Johnson, one hour down, two to go on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, klwn.com, depend on it. Could your business use a little push right now? Need help getting the word out there that you're hiring? Do you just want to let people know how great of a product you have? Well, you can advertise with Rock Chalk Sports Talk and or the Best of RCST podcast. For more information, contact djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. The Chiefs are becoming one of the better running offenses in the NFL. And when I say that, I'm not referring to necessarily the fact that they're going to pound the ball into the ground 40 times a game and that they have that Derrick Henry-level running back that's going to go for 1,800, 2,000 yards in a season. But when you're the Chiefs' offense and when you have Patrick Mahomes and you have the passing attack and the weapons you do, you're not looking to become that offense. What you're looking for is when you do run the ball – how efficient can you be at it? And the Chiefs are starting to do that. And more specifically, Clyde Edwards-Alaire these last two weeks is showing signs that he could be in store for a breakout season or maybe just a breakout stretch of games here. First two games of the season, Clyde Edwards-Alaire ran it 27 times, had just 89 yards on those 27 carries. That's an average of 3.3 yards per carry. Very not a good average. You know, you're trying to be above four. You're trying to be above five, realistically, just given the fact that you are looking to be more efficient than you are a team who runs it a ton. And it was not just the lack of, you know, yards per carry. It's also then you add on the fumble in the Ravens game. You add on the fumble as well in the Chargers game. But outside of that fumble, he played really well in the Chargers game, at least statistically speaking. And you look now over the last two weeks, and this isn't just a case of, oh, well, these last two weeks, the Chiefs played the worst run defenses in the NFL. You played the Chargers, who, as I mentioned in the open, the Chargers have held every team they've played so far this season to their lowest scoring output for that specific team. So he did it against them. He did it against an Eagles team who has a pretty good defensive line, and, you know, it's... I don't know, it's not a great defense, but certainly it's not a terrible defense either for the Eagles. And over these last two games, after those first two games where it was 27 carries, 89 yards, 3.3 per carry, the last two games, Clyde has ran it 31 times. He has 202 yards and and 6.5 yards per carry. He's almost doubling up the amount of yards he's gaining every touch as he did the first two games. You fumble the ball in a key moment like that against the Ravens. 
it can do a lot to you mentally, right? It can we see this all the time or hear this with pitchers in, in baseball where something goes wrong and all of a sudden you have the yips and you can't throw a strike or you can't, you know, something goes wrong on a pickoff throw to first and for whatever reason you just can't throw to first anymore. There are guys who you have a, a fumbling issue or you have a big fumble and that leads to more fumbling issues down the road and it felt like that was going to be the case in that Chargers game and maybe it still will be. But knowing that it wasn't just about the fumble, that you also weren't getting great performance overall, and now you have been after those fumbles, after the, specifically the Ravens one, you almost look back and, and wonder if that's going to be the motivation, the kind of kick in the butt that you need to excel and to hit that next level and to be that guy that the Chiefs drafted you as. You know, it's already a mistake in many people's eyes to ever use a first-round pick on a running back. And typically, I kind of agree with that notion, but I remember when the draft happened, I also was sitting there going, you know what, I don't love taking a running back in the first round, but if ever you were to do it, it's with the very last pick in the first round, you just won a Super Bowl, you're afforded some leeway and some luxury, and it was kind of a luxury pick. You had everything else on the offense, so... Sure, why not just give it to a running back and you trust Andy Reid at, at that point? And it hasn't totally worked out that way. But if you're getting the production that you have been these last two games, if that continues, yes, it will have worked out. Six and a half yards per carry. And think about this. It's it's not just one good game of the last two that, that carry the weight here. You're talking about back-to-back 100-yard rushing games for Clyde to accomplish that. He last year as a rookie had just 400-yard rushing games the entire season, and now he's already got two. He had just two games last season at six or more yards per carry. He's done it each of the last two weeks. He had just one game all of last season where he averaged at or above six and a half yards per carry. He's done it on average the last two games. Feels to me like he's having a breakout, and he's also got back-to-back weeks with a touchdown reception. He had three total receiving touchdowns all of last season. He's getting more involved. He's taking advantage more of when he's getting the ball. He's been more efficient. He's been a really good player these last two weeks. Now, how much do you attribute what I'm trying to figure out if it is kind of a breakout for Clyde Edwards-Alaire to Clyde versus the offensive line. You can make the argument, like I said, with the fumble, that maybe that was the motivation, the kind of kick in the pants you need to, and I don't know why, but that would just be the case, you know, that to maybe hit the next gear, to maybe find that extra motivation in practice or in preparation or whatever it is. Offensive line, though, has been gelling, and it will continue to gel over the course of the season. Conversation we had a lot in the offseason about how that offensive line is going to take time. Every offensive line, when you have all these new players, that's a unit that relies on the other players knowing each other well and knowing who's going to pick up the blitz when that guy comes or where are we going to shift protection, all these things that you have to know about your teammates, and that takes time when you have so many new players, three rookies, three first-year players, I guess, 
with Niang, a free agent signing, and a guy you traded for who's playing a different position. It's going to take some time. But you're starting to see more and more running holes. I mean, some of the holes that offensive line opened up in that game against the Eagles was a beautiful thing to watch from the running game. So it's without a doubt that the offensive line getting better and gelling more has definitely helped and affected things here to allow Clyde to hit these improved statistics, to allow Clyde to get to this point where I am now having the conversation, is he starting to break out? And that's very important to know. But I don't think that it's just a product of that either. I think it's probably a mix of both. And if you are going to continue to get that offensive line improvement and Clyde is breaking out, that's a great sign for this offense, especially because right now you still are searching for that number two receiving threat. I mean, pretty much every game it's either Tyreek Hill or Travis Kelsey is doubled, you know, and in the Chargers game, the Chargers basically doubled Tyreek Hill said, no, we're not going to let you beat us. We'll let Travis Kelsey beat us. You had um, the uh, Eagles where Travis Kelsey's getting do- doubled and uh, Tyreek Hill is the one able to go make plays. You need that other receiving threat so you can open kind of both those guys up or the other receiving threat can be open. Well, if you're going to have at least not that, might as well get as much you can from the running back. And I think we're still waiting on Clyde to be more involved in the passing game. He does have the back-to-back touchdowns overall. Hasn't been a huge load in the passing game. But maybe this is starting to be a breakout for Clyde Edwards-Alaire. And the impact he's had has led to a nice boost for the Chiefs as a team in both the rushing category and overall offense. Because the Chiefs now rank fourth in the entire NFL in yards per carry as a team. And so, obviously, with the Chiefs' offense, the driving force is and always is going to be, as long as he's here, Patrick Mahomes. And... I'm not referring to the totals here, how often you're running the football, how many total rushing yards you're getting. I'm referring to how efficient you are or yards per carry. And in the times you do, because you're doing it less than other teams being a pass-first offense, how efficient can you be? And that is a nice boon for when you rely on that in the times you do, be as effective at it as possible. And right now, they're pretty much maximizing that to as much as you would think with a pass-first offense. Fourth in the NFL in yards per carry. And... How that impacts the margins is actually pretty crazy. Um, it could be the difference between, you know, you have you being that efficient running the ball. It could be the difference between being the best offense in the NFL versus just being one of the best offenses in the NFL. For example, 2020, Chiefs were one of the best offenses in the NFL, but they still ended up just sixth in points per game. And they were top three in net yards per pass attempt, third in the NFL. But they were just 12th in yards per run. Maybe if they were fourth, they would have ended up fourth in points, right? The passing is always going to be more important and the carrying stick for this. But as long as you are running the football, you need to maximize your efficiency. 2019, you were fifth in points per game. You were second to net pass yards per attempt, 20th in, in yards per run. So in both 2020 and 2019, you had top six offenses, but you weren't the best. You weren't even top three. But you still had one of the top three passing offenses both years. Difference is you weren't even a top 10 offense in terms of yards per run. Now you go back to 2018. And 2018 was 
the Chiefs' best offense since Patrick Mahomes has taken over. Now, maybe they were aided a bit by how bad the defense was. You got more possessions in a game because if the, the defense is giving up fast touchdowns, it's just going to create more possessions overall, and you kind of had to keep up more, and maybe that led to it. But the 2018 team was first in points per game. So instead of just being one of the best offenses, which they were in 2020 and 2019, you were the best offense with a bullet in 2018. And you were still top three in net pass yards per attempt. You were first instead of second and third, so you were a little better there. But the big difference for me, again, I mean, either way, you're top three in net pass yards per attempt. It's not like a complete change there. Instead of being 12th or 20th in rush yards per attempt, you were sixth. You had more balance. And even though the passing is the most important thing, even though that is what carries the offense and that is the top importance for the offense, if you're running the football 30 to 40% of the time, you still have to be ultra-efficient running the ball. And so by not being efficient in that regard the last couple of years, instead of being that top offense, you were just in the discussion. So far, this Chiefs offense is top four in both yards per pass and yards per run. Meaning it's closer to that 2018 team than the other two offenses. And honestly, in more than one way, cough, cough defense. But knowing how bad the defense is this year, I mean, you're 31st right now in points allowed per game. Knowing how bad that unit is, having this Clyde breakout combined with the offensive line opening up those huge holes in my opinion, it's going to help the offense be arguably the best offense in the league as opposed to just being in the discussion for being one of the best. And that is the distinction there. And especially for this team. Because for this team to be successful, having just one of the top offenses, having the sixth or fifth best offense like you did in 2020 or 2019, that's probably not enough. I mean, it's probably enough to make the playoffs, but it's not enough to make it to a Super Bowl. For this team to be successful and hit your goals of making it to the Super Bowl again with that defense that they're putting out right now, the only way that happens, the Chiefs are going to have to have the best, the number one offense in the NFL. Last year in 2019, even as being in the discussion, won't apply. And so to accomplish that, it is mostly on Patrick Mahomes, but clearly having an efficient running game is going to be the important factor of maybe instead of being number one, number two, number three, number four, up to that number one spot. And so for that reason, a Clyde Edwards-Alaire breakout would be a very, very dangerous thing for opposing defenses. It would be much needed for the Chiefs, and it might just be happening right now. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports joins us in 20 minutes. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports joins us in about 15 minutes from right now. But first, a little college football whip around. Bama and Georgia. Get used to hearing that because we're going to hear about how dominant they are all season long. It's not wrong. I mean, at this point, it just feels inevitable to that not being the title game or to that being the title game and that they're going to play in the SEC title. Both are going to be undefeated. And then on top of that, 
whoever loses, th- this is part of it too. Whoever loses isn't just going to make the playoff. They're not even going to drop to the four seed where they're going to be the last one in. Because by doing that, it would set up a rematch in the semifinals of the SEC title game. They'll drop them to number three. So the winner will be number one. The loser will be number three. And that'll not only set things up for both to make the playoff, but it'll also set things up that um, at that point, you'll get the rematch in the national title game as opposed to in the semifinals. So that's going to happen. I feel pretty good about that right now. You don't really have the Clemson or the Ohio State or even Oklahoma hasn't looked great that you feel confident in any of these other teams. Georgia has given up, I think, one touchdown so far this season. I mean, there was a non-offensive touchdown that came against this Georgia defense, but overall, I think they've given up 16 points, just the defense alone, and I'm pretty sure the defense alone has scored 16 points. I think they have two defensive touchdowns if you count the PATs, and they have a safety. The defense is incredible. Bama, their offense is on. I mean, the defense is always good as well, but Bryce Young, just bring in a new quarterback, bring in a freshman, and boom, he's the Heisman favorite right now. So, they're going to rematch. It, it's really hard to argue right now that both those aren't the two best teams in the country. They're just pounding everyone into oblivion. I don't think it's as dominant as maybe last year's Alabama or LSU from a couple years ago, though, because you still had, like, Florida gave Alabama a great run for their money. So who knows? Maybe Florida will do the same to Georgia. I just don't really see it on the schedule that, to me, maybe a team can emerge and beat one of these schools in the playoff. And I still think like Arkansas and Ole Miss, who they both beat this week to kind of continue to establish that dominance are a bit overrated. But I just don't think there's anything on the schedule for Alabama and Georgia other than each other that can trip each other up. Because honestly, this is a little different than normal. I don't think there's any other like top 12 teams in the SEC right now. Like A&M was supposed to be that next best team. They're not there. There's a lot of teams who are like good in the SEC outside of Alabama and Georgia who are probably in that like 10, maybe 15 to 35, 40 range in the country. But there's not that like third dominant team right now. Florida loses to Kentucky. I guess maybe Kentucky. If they just stay undefeated, they'll be that team. Um, Florida loses to Kentucky. Ole Miss and Arkansas both getting blown out. Texas A&M looks like a mess right now offensively. There's not really that big challenger that I think is going to give them a threat, so that feels kind of inevitable to me that that's going to happen. Here's something that I find interesting for the playoff. All the talk has been about Cincinnati making it to the playoff, and for good reason. They had a great resume last year. They took Georgia, and now that looks even better that they competed so hard with Georgia. I mean, I thought they were the better team than Georgia in that game. Georgia just hit a great kick at the end, and Cincinnati didn't take advantage of a few things. But it wasn't like a game where you came away from it saying Georgia was so dominant over Cincinnati. And now looking back, that makes that even more impressive how good Georgia is now. I know it's different teams for for both units, but still, both returned a majority of their players. Cincinnati might not even have the best case of a non-Power 5 team to make it to the playoff. BYU right now is sitting there undefeated. And BYU repping the, the big... 12 very well, repping the Pac-12 South very not well because they've beaten Arizona State, Utah, and Arizona. But Arizona State dropped out of the rankings after BYU beat them, and it was like, oh, maybe ASU's just not that good. But Arizona State's won all their other games. They just went into UCLA and dominated UCLA on the road. Now they're ranked again. Utah, 
is starting to get it rolling. I still think they're going to be a good team. BYU has those wins already. They still play Baylor, who I don't know if Baylor will be ranked when they play them because Baylor just lost to Oklahoma State, and right now they're not ranked. They're still a week between. But at the end of the year, it wouldn't be shocking if Baylor's ranked or in that discussion and at least a good win. BYU also still has to play USC, Virginia, and Boise State. And none of those teams are teams that we're viewing right now as top 15 opponents, but all of those teams are teams we view as bowl teams from, in the case of USC and Virginia, Power 5 conferences, probably seven, eight-win teams, and Boise State, who typically is one of the powers in the group of five. That's a lot better than what Cincinnati is going to be able to put up. The win at Indiana is slowly fading. Indiana might not even be a bowl team this year. Notre Dame, they won at the Fighting Irish. That's going to be the big one because at the time, it was a top 10 win for Cincinnati. Notre Dame has a brutal stretch here. You're talking about Virginia Tech, North Carolina, USC. I mean, it is a who's who of Notre Dame's upcoming schedule. And if so, Notre Dame ends up being an 8-4 and four team, they probably won't have enough on the resume to get into the playoff. They need Notre Dame to be like a 10-2 and two team so that win holds a lot of water. They also have the SMU game. SMU is now ranked, and they need SMU to basically win every other game except for the Cincinnati game so that that win looks as good as possible. But overall, the depth of schedule, BYU's is going to be better than Cincinnati. So if both go undefeated, you know, Cincinnati might have the eye test and Cincinnati might have the pedigree test from last year because as much as that shouldn't matter, it does. But BYU probably has a better schedule. I actually wouldn't be that upset if both teams made it. You know, you just have like, okay, Alabama will get the one seed. Cincinnati gets the two seed. Georgia gets the three. Or no, let's have Georgia-Cincinnati get the two, three. So they play as a rematch in the semis. And then BYU gets the four seed. It's some new uh, teams in there. I'm all for it. Could both make it? Maybe. Likely. Probably not. But if ever it were to happen, this is the year. Because of the fact that one, Cincinnati had the right schedule with Notre Dame and Indiana, and now SMU looking good. They beat TCU. BYU, same thing with the schedule. You play three Pac-12 or, or four Pac-12 South teams. You have Baylor, who's good this year. Boise State, Virginia, who's solid this year. Like You have the right schedules, and you also needed clearance around you, chaos around you, and you've kind of got that. I mean, the Pac-12 always shoots itself in the foot, and they already have. Oregon just lost to Stanford. Oregon State and Arizona State along with Oregon, are the only one-loss teams in the Pac-12. There's no undefeated teams left. So most likely the champion out of the Pac-12 is going to end with two losses. The Big Ten is going to have a good case, but it's not a certainty that the Big Ten doesn't have their champion have two losses because right now you're going to have Iowa-Penn State. They play each other. One's going to beat the other. Penn State still has to play Michigan and Ohio State. Michigan still has to play both. Same with Ohio State. They could all beat each other up one time. You still have Wisconsin and Iowa playing in here. Like, there's a chance they could cause chaos with each other because there might not be that much separation this year among those top four or five Big Ten teams. And then the ACC's hopes. I mean, Clemson has two losses. Boston College, who was undefeated, just lost by a score to Clemson. So they have one loss. I guess if they won out, they could hypothetically make it. You'd be 12-1 and out of the ACC. But, I mean, how many wins? It'd probably take, like, two or three wins before Boston College is even ranked at this point. Uh, NC State, Pitt, Virginia Tech are all have one loss, but none of them are impressive enough to think they even have a remote chance at winning out from here. Wake Forest is the only undefeated team, and it's like, is Wake Forest really going undefeated? I like Wake Forest. I think they'll be maybe a nine-win team this year, maybe 10 if the schedule lines up, but they got NC State, Clemson, and Boston College coming up. How many of those are they actually going to win? 
They ain't going undefeated. So things are opening up. And then the Big 12, too. Oklahoma State keeps winning, but are they that good? I don't know. We'll ask that with Kevin Flaherty because every time they win, it's just like, eh, they, they barely won, but they keep winning. That's all that matters. Um, and OU is kind of the same deal with Oklahoma, so I'm not sure those teams have inspired enough to make you think they can go undefeated or maybe even have one loss at this point. Certainly, they're both going to have good seasons and they keep winning, and that's important. But eventually, that catches up to you. And when all it takes is two times it catching up to you in a college football season to miss the playoff, it seems like, to me, the Big 12 would be in danger of not making it. So the short answer is yes. It's definitely possible that both Cincinnati and BYU could make the playoff together. But the long answer is probably not because a lot would have to happen to open up, even though so far it kind of has opened up and it kind of has gone in the direction to help out Cincinnati and BYU. This is Rock Shock Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. We'll talk some more college football, some more Big 12 football. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports joins us next. This is Rock Jock Sports Talk, about 20 till 5 on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Kevin Flaherty joins us on Tuesdays, talks Big 12, college football with us here on RCST. Uh, Kevin, before I get into some Big 12 stuff, I was just talking in the previous segment, and, you know, it's an unlikely situation, but if ever it were to happen, this is the year with everything that's opened up with, you know, the ACC and... uh, I don't even know who would come out of there, I guess, at this point, if Wake Forest is going to go undefeated, but nobody's picking that. The Pac-12, everybody has one loss or more at this point, which Oregon, if they can win out, would probably still be in, but who knows if they'll win out from here. The Big 12 hasn't inspired a ton of confidence, even though you have a couple undefeated teams with how they've been winning so far. I don't know what's going to happen with the Big 10. You have seemingly, I don't know, like four or five teams who could kind of beat each other up at the top in that league. Is there any possibility that both BYU and Cincinnati could make it into the playoff this year? I don't think so, because I think you're looking at getting probably two SEC teams at this point with Alabama and Georgia, regardless of the result of of the SEC title game. I think both are in, and then you just need one major conference you know, title winner after that point. So I don't, I don't think that... I think there's as good a chance as ever for one of them to to slip in. And right now, Cincinnati appears to have the better chance. Of course, that could change. But I do think that there's a pretty good likelihood that whether it's somebody from the Big Ten, you know, whether it's Iowa or whoever, whether Oklahoma, you know, sort of picks up the pace, whether Texas, you know, runs out the rest of its schedule to – to finish with one loss, I think that you're still looking at a point where one of those teams with one loss, like a Texas, would probably still get in over the second uh, of Cincinnati and BYU. So I don't think that there's a great chance that both of them get in. And I think, you know, Alabama and Georgia are kind of cruising toward that, uh, that collision point. And while it's going to be one of the most anticipated games of the season, I also think that from a college football playoff standpoint, it might not mean anything because if both of them enter that game undefeated, I have a really hard time believing that the college football playoff committee is going to send whoever loses that game home. Yeah, and I I even went a step further last segment. I I said that not only will 
that person make the playoff, whoever loses, they won't even get the four seed. They'll get the three seed for a couple of reasons. One, they're not going to want to rematch them. I know they're not supposed to do that, but that's going to end up coming up in the conversation. And on top of it, they're just going to have them better than the four. I don't know. That's kind of my prediction. Um, and then you end up probably getting a rematch in the national title game. I, I just think it's interesting with BYU and Cincinnati because if, like, let's say you're in a scenario where you have one loss, Ohio State, or, I don't know, one loss, Oklahoma or something. Cincinnati doesn't have the depth of the schedule necessarily, and, and a lot of this depends on how good Notre Dame ends up being because that would be Cincinnati's crown jewel. And, you know, what happens, though, if, if TCU were to upset an Oklahoma and be Oklahoma's one loss and Cincinnati just pastes SMU, who ends up being a ranked team like they are now, and we have the SMU-TCU congruency. And I know it isn't as simple always to say, well, this team beat this team and that team, and, and that's never how it works, but the committee does view it that way. I just wonder if they would view them that way. And with BYU, you're looking at them beating, if they, if they go undefeated, they would have beaten four Pac-12 schools, they would have beaten an ACC school. They would have beaten a Big 12 school. They would have beaten Boise State. I, I don't know. I, I think there might be like a legit possibility if chaos keeps happening around them. Well, it's a fascinating scenario for the reason you just mentioned, and that's this, Derek. Cincinnati passes the eye test more than BYU. Would you agree with that? Yes. Like if you were to put them both on, on a field and say, hey, Vegas, you know, pick – whichever team you think is going to win here on a neutral field, I'm pretty sure they'd pick Cincinnati. I think Cincinnati has the look of the better team. I think it also but helps B the quarterback play. BYU is still sure. not settled on a guy, and Cincinnati might have a first-round pick. Sure. And the flip side of that is BYU will be the more deserving team mm -hmm. if they both went out. BYU's resume, it's not even close, Derek. Like, with what they're going to wind up having, BYU is going to have a significantly better resume if they went out than Cincinnati does, not by a little bit, but by a lot. And so that's where it really comes in, and it's interesting to me because, remember, the committee has said on multiple occasions it's not about picking the most deserving teams. It's about picking the best teams. And that's why you, know, you hear these reports of, committee members being on flights and they're watching, you know, eight o'clock Oklahoma playing in a game against Baylor or somebody like that is because they're trying to get a very real feel, not just for the resume, because yes, that matters, but they want to get a real feel for who the best teams are. And so I think that's really what hurts BYU in this case is, if we're looking at an NCAA tournament type situation where it's more based around your resume, it's more based on who has done what, I think BYU would be the, the higher seed. But in college football, in the college football playoff, based on what committee members have said in the past and committee chairmen have said in the past, they're trying to pick the best team. And I think that already at this point in the season, you know, barring any major surprises, people have kind of looked at Cincinnati and said, this is the better team between the two of them. And so I think that that's the tough thing for BYU to try and get in this thing, even if they do win out, even if they do have a better resume than Cincinnati, there's a pretty solid chance the committee is going to look at it and say, yeah, that's great and all, but Cincinnati has a better chance of beating Georgia or whoever it is. 
Yeah, I think that's a very good point, and that could be quite the discussion. I don't even think BYU is going to end up undefeated when you look at the schedule, but uh, I don't know. Just interesting if it happened. We're talking with Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. All right, on to the Big 12 stuff. Texas-Oklahoma play this week, and I, I can never remember the name of – I feel like it's switched three times in my lifetime, Red River Shootout, Rivalry, whatever it is. Um, is the winner of that game going to be deemed the clear-cut Big 12 favorite from here on out? I think so. I, I really do. And it's not necessarily that, that that's the, the best Big 12 team, the one that wins, because we've seen this game has been incredibly close you know, in recent years, even when Oklahoma has had better teams. I think the last several regular season matchups have been decided you know, by a score or less. And when you look at the way Texas has played up in those games, even with inferior teams, there's a very real possibility that Texas wins that game, and you still come out feeling like Oklahoma is going to wind up being the better team on down the line. And so I, I do think that whoever wins that is, is going to be seen as the Big 12 favorite or certainly the favorite to reach the Big 12 title game at this point because not only will they be undefeated in, in Big 12 play, and don't forget, you know, Texas is, I mean, Texas got absolutely thumped by Arkansas. And so I feel like everybody kind of put them on the side burner. But Texas hasn't lost in Big 12 play yet. And so if Texas wins this game, not only are the Longhorns still undefeated, but they have a win over one of the other top Big 12 contenders, you know, a major obstacle out of the way. And you could say the same thing for Oklahoma, which actually is undefeated and still undefeated in Big 12 play. I think if Oklahoma wins this game and wins this game, by any sort of decent margin, like let's say it's 10 points or more, people may stop looking at Oklahoma like, man, this this team's disappointing. It's not reaching its potential. You know, there's something not quite right here. And, and so I, I do think that there's something there for Oklahoma, too, to, to maybe establish itself as the team that people thought before the season when a lot of people were picking Oklahoma to maybe win the national championship this season. What's funny with with Oklahoma State is they've kind of done similar things to what Oklahoma has done in terms of you're just winning, but it's not necessarily looking so pretty. But with Oklahoma State, I don't know if it's just because of the preseason ranking or if it's just because of the pedigree in terms of we have seen Oklahoma win the coverage so often that you just assume, okay, they're winning close, but they'll get it figured out. Whereas when I view Oklahoma State, I see them winning these close games or these weird games, and I just go, oh, that's that's going to end at some point. And, and it's not that they're a bad team or anything. Like They'll probably end up with nine or ten wins, but I I just am not really buying into them being undefeated. Do, do you agree, disagree with my sentiment on them? Yeah, Oklahoma State's kind of the bane of my existence right now, Derek. <laughs> And the and the reason I say that is every Friday we run an upset alert column. <laughs> and basically you're supposed to pick five games which could result in upsets. It's not a straight up we are picking this team to beat this team, but hey, there are the ingredients here to where an upset could happen. And two weeks ago, not to not to tout my own record or anything, but two weeks ago, four of the five upsets hit including one wow. that was, where the line was was 10 points or over. We always pick one big margin like that, you know, as kind of a wild card. Four of the five hit. The one that didn't, 
Oklahoma State thumping <laughs> Kansas State, you know, after not really looking good at all to start the season. This past week, we did pretty well, Derek. We hit three out of five. One of the ones that we missed was Oklahoma State and Baylor, <laughs> where we picked Baylor to upset Oklahoma State. And so, you know, what could be sort of a sparkling record right now, not that it's bad, but it could be even better if not for those Oklahoma State Cowboys. And I wrote this past week, I said, hey, if Oklahoma State beats Baylor, and Stillwater has been somewhat of a house of horrors for Baylor in, year, in you know recent years, I, I wrote that I would have to start taking them seriously as a Big 12 title candidate. And I think that that's where I'm at. I don't love this Oklahoma State team. I don't necessarily have full buy-in. I'm not going to go out you know, around the water cooler and be like, man, did you see Oklahoma State's <laughs> effort the other night? But the flip side of that is, is, like you said, they just keep winning. And so they haven't looked good when you've watched them, and yet they have a good defense. They had a great defensive effort against Baylor. And Spencer Sanders makes them just dangerous enough on offense, even you know if he's been inconsistent, that you kind of, I feel like, have to account for the fact that maybe Oklahoma State's offense is even – you know, a game or two away from from showing up to a level it hasn't so far. But with the level of experience on that team, with that defense, with them winning ugly games, I do think you have to sort of put them in that category where they're at least a Big 12 dark horse, if not an outright league title contender at this point. Yeah, they're almost like a, a light version of the uh, 20, I forget, it was 2014 Florida State that went undefeated and they made the playoff and it's like, well, we have to put them in. They went undefeated. They won the ACC, but it's like, how good are they? They just kept pulling rabbits out of their hat, but they went undefeated and they got crushed in the playoffs. So I, I don't know what will happen with Oklahoma state. Um, it is October, which is typically Iowa state month, Brocktober, I guess with Brock <laughs> Purdy. And they started it off by pounding Kansas. Uh, what do you think this means for both teams? You know, for Iowa State, it was exactly what you've been wanting to see. You know, and I think people maybe got away from Iowa State a little too quickly, given that this is a team that, you know, just dominated Iowa in that game and turned the ball over too much. If they didn't have the turnovers against Iowa, of course, you know, Iowa, what, turned the team over seven times this past weekend. So, you know, that may be as much Iowa as anything else, but. My point is that Iowa State dominated that game from a yardage standpoint. You know, they looked like the better team, and they lost anyway. They were dominant against Baylor from a yardage standpoint, and Baylor made it up with, you know, the quote-unquote hidden yardage situation, special teams, you know, things of that nature, and they lost that game. And so while Iowa State, you know, is sitting here with two losses, it's very easy to look at them and say, you know what? They've been better than every single team they've played so far, and that includes a, a top-five Iowa team. And so I think with Iowa State, when you saw them in that game, you really wanted to see them put their, their foot down and look like that team and not turn the ball over and execute. Certainly they did that. From a Kansas perspective, it was the first game that we've seen all year where the game got out of hand in the first half. You know, in all of the rest of them, even ones like the Baylor game where, you know, they were pretty outplayed, I feel like, from a yardage standpoint and everything. 
you know, they were still right there at half from a score standpoint where you're saying, hey, a play or two here or there, you know, you're you're right there. And everything sort of went wrong. And it was bound to happen at some point that a game was going to get away from them and everything else. I think the thing that, that interests me, Derek, in that is you're going to have games like that, especially when you're in the first year of a, of a building job the way, you know, Lance Leipold is. The question is how your players respond. And I thought they came out in the second half and responded pretty well. You know, there wasn't a, a quit there. Not that, you know, college football teams really actually quit that much. But I felt like, you know, they came out and, and played like it was 0-0 the way that, that you would want them to. I felt like there was some battle in them. And, and even some of the plays that got away from them, I, I feel like people don't notice – how thin the margin is, right? I mean, if Jason Bean tucks that ball and doesn't hold it to his side, you know, they, they aren't turning that ball over and you don't give up a short field, et cetera. And that's a really easy teachable point, isn't it? I mean, that's something that you can go in and you can fix really quickly. You know, when you look at the Brock Purdy touchdown pass to, uh, to Charlie Kolar, I mean, Kansas played that pretty well. Rich Miller almost got the sack Along the sideline with Brock Purdy, he threw it up to his six foot six, just monstrous tight end. Kansas had a cornerback right there in position to make the play, and Kolar just made a better one. And so you look at stuff like that, and you say, on one hand, man, the score really got out of hand. Man, that was ugly. But the flip side of that is, is I think when you go into film on Sunday, you can look at those things and say, hey, if you're able to turn around here and make this play on the ball, or if you tuck this ball, or if you do this or do that, if you stay in your gap here, you know, a little bit better, those are the margins by which you stay in games. And those are the margins by which eventually you win games. And so uh, I know, obviously, it's never a positive to get blown out. The flip side of it is, I think it really showed you know, how thin that line is between maybe where this team has success and hangs around and where they have been doing things right, not turning the ball over, et cetera, and, and what happens when, when maybe some of those things go wrong. And so I, I did like the response. Like I said, it, it's probably good for them to, to have a week off to, to start working on things and, and pointing out things and all of that. But, you know, obviously you didn't, it's not like we expected Kansas to win the Big 12 this year, and we thought there would be probably some ugly results. But what happens next is more important than what actually happened on Saturday. And what happens right next is the Texas Tech game, which I thought was going to be the most winnable game on the Big 12 schedule. It's off a of bye week, homecoming, and you know that's a team you've only lost by three last year, won by three the year before that. But then – Texas Tech goes out and wins at West Virginia. So um, is West Virginia now KU's most winnable game, or is it still Texas Tech? You know, West Virginia may seem like it because the offense, you know, hasn't really shown up. And so with, with that there, you know, you have, a, you have a chance if you execute defensively to where you're maybe going to have a chance to be in a game and, and where a player to decide something and – and everything else. The thing with Texas Tech, I would say, was Texas Tech has been this team, what, the last two, three years? 
you know, in, in terms of they've been a team that has been so Jekyll and Hyde where they've had some performances where you've looked at it and you said, okay, Texas Tech is close to being a bowl team. And then you've also had games where they've come out and just, you know, sort of laid a, a giant egg. And for the Red Raiders, that's been the last two Kansas games. When you look at the game in Lawrence that Kansas actually won in in 2019, and then the game last year in the season finale where, you know, Kansas blocks a field goal that goes through the uprights anyway, and Texas Tech wins by three. And so I don't know that you can look at that West Virginia game and tell a whole lot about what kind of Texas Tech team is going to show up against Kansas. But I do think that West Virginia, before it gets its offensive issues fixed, you know, that might be the sort of team that, uh, it, like I said, if Kansas comes out, plays well defensively, where maybe that's, uh, maybe that's a game they can hang around in and, and see what happens. He's Kevin Flaherty. You can check out all his work at 247sports.com. Kevin, thank you so much for the time, as always, and uh, I hope Oklahoma State doesn't spurn you again this week. <laughs> I'm not going to pick him, Derek. I can <laughs> tell you that much. All right, thanks a lot. All right, that's Kevin Flaherty, 247sports. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk.